welcome to episode 8 of the Algae and Sci-Fi the Podcast. My name is Derek Vitrout, and I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Today we are going to go back to the printed word and look at a book titled The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. And this is actually the first part of a two-part episode, so I couldn't get through all of this in one episode. I mean, I, I could have just been a very long episode, but so I decided not to do that. For, that. That's the first reason why it's two parts. The second reason is I just wasn't ready to discuss all, all of it. it. It took me longer to discuss the first half than I thought it was, and I was getting ready, and this is not my day job, so it's something I do kind of when I can, and, and just wasn't ready to tackle all the book at once. So today we will look at the first 10 chapters, and then in a couple of weeks we'll look at the last 10 chapters. So we'll get started and we'll dive into this book by Ursula K. Le Guin. I'm excited to be looking at a book by a woman author. It's the first one that we have, but not the last one of this season. So I am excited about that and look forward to it. But before we dive into the left hand of darkness, let's take a little bit of a look of who was Ursula K. Le Guin. On her website, UrsulaKLeGuin.com, we read this about her. Ursula Krober Le Guin was born in 1929 and passed away in 2018. She was a celebrated author whose body of work included 23 novels, 12 volumes of short stories, 11 volumes of poetry, 13 children's books, 5 essay collections, and 4 works of translation. The breadth and imagination of her work earned her 6 Nebula Awards, 7 Hugo Awards, and the SWFA's Grand Master, along with the Penn Malat. Malamud and many other awards. In 2014, she was awarded the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, and in 2016, joined the shortlist of authors to be published in their lifetimes by the Library of America. So we read all of that from her website about who she was. She wrote a lot of of, of books. Somebody who I enjoy reading her books and uh, enjoy getting her perspective. In terms of religious beliefs, Le Guin once said that she was raised as an irreligious jackrabbit. I don't know what that means. I'm not really sure. But she also expressed a deep interest in Taoism and Buddhism, saying that Taoism gave her, quote, a handle on how to look at life, unquote, during her adolescent years. In 1997, she published a translation of the Tao Te Ching, motivated by her sympathy for Taoism thought. I must admit that I don't know much about Taoism, but according to the National Ge- NationalGeographic.org, Taoism, which is also spelled Taoism, with a, so either Taoism with a T or Taoism with a D, is a religion and a philosophy from ancient China that has influenced folk, influenced folk and national belief. Taoism has been connected to the philosopher Lao Tzu, who around 500 BC wrote the main book of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching. Taoism holds that humans and animals should live in balance with the Tao or the universe. Taoists believe in spiritual immortality where the spirit of the body joins the universe after death. So it clearly seems here like we have some pantheism going on here at the very least. So, But I don't know much about Taoism, so, so I just found that was interesting. In terms of the book we are looking at today, The Left Hand of Darkness, it is said that this was Le Guin's first book to address feminist issues. And according to scholar Donna White, it stunned the, scientific, the science fiction critics, and it won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards for Best Novel, making Le Guin the first woman to win both awards. The Left Hand of Darkness was published in 1969 and was among the first books in the genre now known as feminist science fiction. 
and is the most famous examination of androgyny in science fiction. We'll get into this more, but androgyny, according to Webster's Dictionary, means having the characteristics or nature of both male and female. Before we get started, I must give you a warning here that in this podcast we will be discussing issues of sex and gender, so this may not be suitable for everyone. If you have young children, this is probably not the podcast for them to be listening to, so that's just a warning that there will be some mature issues discussed, but I mean, we're going to do that in, in a way that, that's appropriate for the adult Christian to be listening to. I just want, I, I'm just not sure how great this would be for all children, so I just wanted to give you uh, some warning for that. And the copy of the book that I have, and I'm not sure what printing it is, but there's an introduction to the book by Le Guin. It's a non-fictional introduction, and she just, she gives us some information about it. And there were several things of interest that stood out to me, two of which we'll talk about right now. At one point in the introduction, Le Guin says this, I talk about the gods. I am an atheist, but I am an artist too, and therefore a liar. Distrust everything I say. I am telling the truth. So is Le Guin an atheist or not? What about Taoism? I, I, I don't know. And from this, this paragraph that we have here, I'm not sure that we're supposed to know. I talk about the gods. I am an atheist. But I am an artist too and therefore a liar. Distrust everything I say. I am telling the truth. Well, that's confused me. But I thought it was interesting and worth mentioning here on this podcast. The other line in the introduction worth mentioning now is this line. I really like this line, actually. She writes here that science fiction is not predictive. It is descriptive. I really like that line. So there are some aspects of science fiction that are predictive in terms of technology or the future state of the world. But when we read or watch science fiction, as it often does, it takes place in the future. So sometimes we we read and, and all these things either, you know, take place in the future or in galaxies far, far away. They don't sometimes they don't usually they don't take place on Earth today in, in, in the current day. So we have things that are taking place in the future, and we have future technology, and we have all those things, so sometimes we think that science fiction is predicting what will the world look like? What will the world be like in 100 years? What are some issues that people will be dealing with then? But actually, what Le Guin is saying is that sci-fi, in sci-fi, there's not so much a critique on a future society and what that will look like or what future societies will have to deal with, but science fiction is making a critique on what we have to deal with now or at the time of the writing, or the filming of the book, whatever it may be. So, so science fiction is not so much predictive as it is descriptive. It's making a statement on things that we need to deal with now, or at the time of the writing, or, or things that are not just going to be things that people have to deal with in the future, but they're things that society people are dealing with now. So I actually really like that quote, that science fiction is not so much predictive, but it is descriptive. I like that. All right, well, we're going to dive into the book, The Left Hand of Darkness, and we are going to go in depth here. There's quite a bit to talk about. And as again, as I said, we're only going to talk about the first half for this for this episode. We'll talk about the second half in the next episode, and there's a lot to cover, so let's get started. The Left Hand of Darkness starts with the, in, in the first chapter with a report from Jen Lee I. His last name is spelled A-I, so I, I think is how you'd say that, I, A-I? I don't know. I'll just call him I. So uh, he's the first mobile on Gethin or Winter. So Gethin is the name of the planet that we're on in this story, but it's also known as Winter. And I think by the end, you'll understand why. And yes, it is and does get very cold there. So they call it Winter. But I is a man from Earth who's been set to Gethin to convince the Gethian governments to join an interplanetary trade network known as the Ecumen. But here's the opening line 
of the book, the first line in I's report. I'll make my report as if I told a story, for I was taught as a child on my home world that truth is a matter of the imagination. And that's truth with a capital T writing in there. So this sentence in this book, the truth has a capital T. I'll make my reports as if I told a story, for I was taught as a child on my home world that truth is a matter of the imagination. I find that interesting that they use the capital T there for that. But along the same idea on the 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 bottom of the first page of my copy of the book and onto the second page in the first chapter, when I is still giving an introduction to his, his report, we read this. The story is not all mine, nor told by me alone. Indeed, I am not sure whose story it is. You can judge better. But it is all one. And if at any moments the facts seem to alter with an altered voice, why then you can choose the fact you like best, yet none of them are false, and it is all one story. Well, here, especially considering the first line of the book, we need to enter into a discussion about truth. What is truth? Is your truth your truth and my truth my truth, or is truth, truth always truth no matter what, no matter what one's personal beliefs may be? Well, Let's look at some different kinds of truth and some misunderstandings about truth, and perhaps we can see what truth is and what truth is not, and, and what that really means. So there are some different kinds of truth. There, there are different kinds of truth that people would call subjective truth, relative truth, and absolute truth. So let's start out by looking at subjective truth. What does that mean? Well, subjective truth is something that is true that's based off of a person's perspective or feelings or opinions. An example of, sub of a subjective truth would be that science fiction is the best genre. Actually, maybe that's not so much a subjective truth because no one could argue with that, right? Of course, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Saying science fiction is the best genre is a subjective truth. I believe it to be the best genre. Someone else might not, and what is best from their perspective is different than what is best from mine. So while it's true for me that science fiction is the best genre, it may not be true for you that science fiction is the best genre, because that's based off of my thoughts, feelings, opinions. Another subjective truth is saying that vanilla is better than chocolate. That's my opinion. So for me, it is true because it is based on my opinion. Or golf is a fun sport to play. That is how I feel about golf. So it's true for me, but it may not be true for you. And those are things that are called subjective truth. Although I'm not sure that's a great term for it, and we'll get into that. So let's just make sure we have this straight, though. A subjective truth is a truth based off of a person's perspective, feelings, or opinions. Now, you might think I could say something like the New England Patriots cheated to win Super Bowls. So in my opinion, they have never won any Super Bowls. And that is how I feel about it, and that is my perspective, so it is true for me that they have never won a Super Bowl. That's a subjective truth for me because that's how I feel about it. However, you not liking the Patriots, or you saying that you feel they have zero Super Bowls, does not change the fact that the Patriots have actually won six Super Bowls. That is something, how many Super Bowls they won, is something that is not based on perspective, feelings, or opinions of others. They have been officially recognized by the NFL as winning six Super Bowls, and that truth doesn't change no matter how you feel about it, no matter what your opinion is, no matter what your perspective is. How many Super Bowls the New England Patriots have won is not a matter of subjective truth. It's just not. That would actually be an example of an objective truth. 
So we could define an objective truth as a truth that is independent from individual subjectivity. That means that no matter how much you don't want something to be true, such as the Patriots having six Super Bowls, it doesn't change the truth that they have won six Super Bowls. So it is something that no matter how you feel about it, no matter what your opinion is, no matter what your perspective is, it doesn't change anything about it because that truth is not based off of your feelings, perspective, opinions, etc. And then there is relative truth. Relative truth could be defined as truth and falsity being the product of the context in which you find yourself in. Simply put, truth depends on various factors and truth can change when those factors change. So people who so, so, so people who, who say that truth is relative would say things like, what you believe is true for you, but what I believe is true for me. Or they might say something like, truth is in the eye of the beholder. So to be a relativist means that a belief, idea, proposition, claim, etc. is never true or false. It's never good or bad. It's never right or wrong, absolutely. According to the relativist, there is no absolute or objective truth. Truth is relative and subjective because all truths become based off of an opinion or a perspective or a context. Before we go any further, I think that we can all agree and see the legitimacy of what is called subjective truth. That uh, the, the, What I think is the best book that is true for me, but what I think the best book is doesn't mean that it makes it the best book for everyone. So something else could be true for you. That makes sense on me because it's based on your feelings, your perspective, your opinion. So there's really no argument over there being a thing called subjective truth. One of the problems with subjective truth, however, is when we try to take things that are not subjective, like the Patriots winning six Super Bowls, or even the resurrection of Jesus, we, we take those things that are not subjective and try, people try to make them subjective. Well, according to my context, in my experience, in my opinions, those aren't true. But even but they but those things are not subject to your opinion, to your thoughts, to your feelings, to to your perspective. They are true irregardless of subjectivity. So, well, if you feel Jesus rose from the dead, some people will say, "Well, then that's true for you." And if you don't feel that he rose from the grave, then that is, uh, then that is what's true for me. That's what people who have relative truth would want to say, but no. It doesn't matter. It doesn't work that way. You are taking a truth that is in no way based off of your feelings, perspectives, or opinions and trying to make it based off of those things. In American culture, I know we have some foreign listeners here, and I can't really speak for for different cultures here, but in the United States, we have a culture that takes things that are not subjective and tries to make them subjective. But you can't. Because there are some things that are objective truths, that, that are truth that are not based off of your feelings or your perspectives or your opinions. So let's take a look at relative truth and objective truth then. Those who say truth is relative actually say something quite funny. They say that there is no absolute truth. They say there is no absolute truth. Do you see what's funny about that? There is no absolute truth. Now, any first-year logic student should be able to tell you that what the relativists do is they make a claim that is self-defeating. To say there is no absolute truth means that you have just made an absolute statement that is absolutely true. 
It's a self-defeating claim. It's a self-defeating statement. You have just contradicted, contradicted yourself, saying there is no absolute truth. You've just made an absolutely true statement. So when the relativists argue that relativists is real because there is no absolute true, truth, what they've just done is, self, is defeated their own claim, and they are trying to make an argument that absolute truth doesn't exist by using an absolute truth. It's a self-defeating argument. It's kind of funny. You can't be a relativist and claim that all truth is always relative. Because if you do, you just made an absolute, absolutely true statement. You just made an objectively true statement. So relative truth already has a problem. It can't even make its core claim without defeating itself. It's kind of funny. Well, let's take a, a, a little bit more of a look at objective truth so we can understand what truth is. Because relative truth has just defeated itself. So there must be objective truth if even the relativists saying that all truth is relative have made an absolute claim or an objective claim. I use those two words interchangeably, either objective or absolute for truth. So again, objective truth is a truth that is not based off of one's feelings, perspectives, or opinions, or context. First of all, objective truth is discovered, not invented. It is independent of anyone's knowledge. For example, gravity existed before Newton discovered it. Newton's discovery did not all of a sudden make gravity exist. He didn't invent gravity. He discovered it because objective truth has always been and always will be. So it's discovered, not invented. Objective truth is also transcultural. What that means is if something is true, it is true for all people in all places at all times. So 2 plus 2 always equals 4 for everyone, everywhere, at all time. 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Truth is also unchanging, even though beliefs about truth can change. So, for example, when we, be we began to believe that the earth was round instead of flat, the truth didn't change. Only our belief about the truth changed. So truth is unchanging even when beliefs about truth change. Beliefs, uh, the, uh, the next one is that beliefs cannot change objective truth, no matter how sincerely that belief is held. Someone can sincerely believe that the world is flat, but that only makes them sincerely mistaken. It doesn't change the roundness of the earth to make it flat because someone believes it so much. So beliefs cannot change objective truth. Truth is also not affected by the attitude of the person professing it. The arrogant do not make truths they profess to be false, even though they're arrogant about it. What they can say that is true is still true, and those who are humble do not make falsehoods that they profess to be true, even though they're being humble and not arrogant about it. So those are some things about truth. And before we continue, I just want to mention that much of this discussion, especially on truth, has come from the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith, to be an Atheist by Norman L. Geisler and Frank Turek, a great resource. I encourage you to check it out, a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But back to truth, and subjective truth is real and only applies to matters of your personal feelings, preference, opinions, etc. Relative truth has defeated itself, and we have seen that truth doesn't change just because somebody wants it to. If I don't want the world to be round, I want it to be flat, so I'm going to believe that. That does not change the roundness of the world. And relative truth, if we say all truth is relative or 
uh, th- then we have just made an absolute statement and relative truth has defeated itself. Objective truth is for matters of fact, historical events, people, God, laws of nature, things that are not based on your personal preference. So whatever truth there is that is not based on your personal preference and no beliefs in something like God are true or false based on your personal preference. It doesn't work that way because God is who God is dependent of, how, of who you want God to be. It doesn't matter whether you believe to be God, how you believe God to be, God does not change with your beliefs. God does not change with your opinions. God does not change with your feelings, just like the roundness of the earth doesn't change with people's beliefs or opinions or feelings on the roundness of the earth. God is the same way. That God is not dependent. He does not change with our beliefs or how we feel about him. In the same way that I am who I am and who I want to be independent of who you want me to be. So you could come to me and say, I want you to change this. I want you to change that. I want you to be like this. I want you to work in this way. You could come and tell me all of those things and say, well, that's how I want you to be. So it's true. Well, wait, no, you don't. That's not the way that it works. Just because you believe something about me does not make it true. You can believe something and you can just believe it very sincerely, but be sincerely mistaken. So your beliefs about me do not change who I am, just as your beliefs about God does not change who he is. Those things like that don't get to be decided by personal feelings or perspectives or opinions. So anything that is not a subjective truth, and I don't even like that term the more I think about it. I'm not a fan of it. Maybe we should just call it opinion because that's basically what subjective truth is. It's your opinion. It's your feelings. It's your perspective. So anything that is not your opinion based is an absolute truth and is true regardless of your opinions, your feelings, your preferences or or perspectives. So right away, we have some problems with the story, The Left Hand of Darkness, because we read that truth is a matter of the imagination and that we can choose the facts that we like best in the story when there are contradicting facts. So that leads me to ask, can we trust any of this story? Is anything in it reliable? Not if truth in this, re- in this novel is relative. There's no way to trust anything if everything is relative. And if everything is relative, we've just made an absolute statement and have defeated relativity yet again in terms of truth being relative. So just the first line already has led us into a great discussion about what truth is and what truth is not. And what we try to do a lot of times is take things that are objective and make them subjective to our opinion. We don't like them, so we're going to change them. Well, I don't feel this way, so that's not true for me. But some, but things are not based off of your feelings for truth. That's not the way a lot of things in this world work. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you can change it. Just because you don't like something that's happened in the past doesn't mean that you can change it and say that it never happened or that it happened this way. I mean, you can say that, but that doesn't make it true. It just makes it a lie. So right away, we've already had a really interesting discussion here on truth and what truth is and what truth is not. So just be cautious to to remember what is subjective truth, which is really just matters of your opinion, and and then everything else is objective truth. It's either true or it is not. And the truth of a circumstance, person, being, whatever it may be, does not change with your opinion or your perspective or your context. Truth remains truth. And God is truth. Anyway, back to the book. And in chapter one, our main character 
uh, Genli I, as I have said, he's writing a report from his time on the planet Gethin. He is called by the people of this planet the Envoy and has been here for two years. I is in a parade in Arenrang, the capital of the country Carhide. Now, this parade is in celebration of a river gate that is being finished, which symbolizes an expansion of trade possibilities. And King Argaven the Fifteenth gets to lay the keystone in the river gate. At this point, we we meet uh, someone who will become another main character in the story, Theram Harth Rem Ear Estraven, referred to just as Estraven. Estraven, at this point, is the Prime Minister of Carhide, and at one point he seems to have a disagreement with a man named Tib, who is another official and also the king's cousin. And it appears to I that something is not well between these two. But at the parade, S. Raven invites I over to dinner at his house, and something S. Raven has never done before, so I accepts it. He's kind of surprised that he would be invited over to his house. Well, the keystone is set, and I returns to his house, but um, he is taller than the normal Gethian. He's noticed on the way home, and while having a public presence is part of I's job, so he is there trying to get people to join this trade, uh, Interplanetary Trade Commission. And uh, people know why he's there, and he's taller than the people of this planet, so he stands out a little bit, and this is starting to wear on him. Even though having a public presence is part of his job, it's starting to wear on him, and here is what we read. Of course, that was part of my job, but it was a part that got harder, not easier, as time went on. More and more often, I longed for anonymity. For sameness, I craved to be like everyone else. This is a familiar mindset that's been a common theme here on Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. Trying to conform to be like others. Remember the episode on Martian Chronicles where the Martians wore masks either to conceal or to conform? Well, here I wants to conform. He wants to be like everyone else. But why? Because it's hard to stand out. It's hard to be the only person who someone, it's hard to be the person who someone is always watching. It's hard to have people point at you and laugh at you or talk about you or always being noticed and always being watched. It's hard to be different. It isn't comfortable. And we just think that maybe things would be better if we could just blend in, if we could just be like everyone else and kind of fall in the background and no one will notice us. But, but in Romans 12:2, we read this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It may be easier to conform to how others are so we don't stand out, so we don't draw attention to ourselves, but we are called to not conform, but to be transformed. Will that make us stand out? Sometimes. Will it lead to trouble with some people, including strangers, friends, and family members? Sometimes. Will it lead to to being uncomfortable with some people and some places and some situations? Sometimes. But Jesus is with us through all of that. And our Christian brothers and sisters are with us through all of that as well. So we are not alone. And we are called not to conform, but to be transformed. So how are you allowing God to transform you? And how are you allowing him to work in your life so that you are not going to conform to the society and who people are who are not following God, but instead be transformed. How are you working on that? Well, back to the book, and I goes to Esther Raven's house, and he doesn't trust Esther Raven. 
I don't think he really likes him because as to Raven, he's hard to figure out. I can't tell his motives and that causes him to distrust him, but Estraven tells him he's no longer going to be working for King Argaven because the king doesn't like how Estraven handled the conflict between Carhide and the country of Orgorion. Estraven also explains that there are those people who oppose the trade alliance that I is trying to establish and that King Argaven sees the ecumen as a threat to his power. I doesn't get this because they're they're not only they're only trying to establish a trade partnership. They're not trying to take over or war, rule Carhide. They just want to trade with him. But King Argaven doesn't trust it. But Estraven explains that the king. He also explains that the king is patriotic, is the word that he uses. And here we have this exchange. Estraven says, "Let me ask you this, Mister I." Do you know, by your own experience, what patriotism is? No, I said, shaken by the force of that intense personality, suddenly turning itself wholly upon me. I don't think I do. If my patriot, if, if by patriotism you don't mean the love of one's homeland, for that I do know. And S. Raven says, no, I don't mean love when I say patriotism. I mean fear. The fear of the other. And it is and its expressions are political, not poetical. Hate, rivalry, aggression. It grows in us that fear. It grows in us year by year. And we've followed our road too far. Here we see another topic that again has been familiar and is often seen on this podcast. And this time it's actually clearly spelled out for us. The fear of the other. So we have talked about this before, but we see it here in a new light. We see the idea of the fear of the other being born out of patriotism. Because they love their country so much, they fear anything that is different than their country. They feel any, fear anyone who is not part of their country. They fear other people coming into their country. They fear change coming in and people trying to, to make things different, even if it is just a trade alliance coming in to make things better and more prosperous for everyone. So it's a really interesting idea here that the love of their country produces in them the fear of the other. But if you're old enough to remember and have lived through 9-11, I think there is certainly this mentality for many people in America at that time. While the rest of the world was saying we are all Americans today, some in America were saying now it's us against the world because they're not us, because they are other, no matter who that they is, that we need to protect ourselves, we need to protect our borders, we need to protect our citizens, and we are going to be against everyone else because we don't know who they are or what they could do or what they could bring. Patriotism here in this book has led to fear of the other, and I think Le Guin is describing that now, and it's applicable in 2022. She wrote this in 1969, so I don't know what, how applicable it was then, I should have probably done some research on that, but it just occurred to me. But it's certainly interesting that it's even though this book was written over 50 years ago, we can look at it now and can still say, oh, yeah, I see that. I see how patriotism for some is not just love of country, but how that can then lead to a fear of the other. How that, that's not a very far step to take. That a deep patriotism can grow a fear of the other within us in normal times even because we don't want people to come in and change things. Because our society is better than your society. 
Our economic system is better than your economic system. Our food is better. Our sports are better. Our TV is better. Our cars are better. Whatever it may be, we don't want people to come in and change things. We fear that they may bring something that is different. And so out of our patriotism, a fear of the other is developed. Which is, what, which is one of the many reasons that being overly patriotic is a problem for the person who is following Jesus. That might get me in trouble, but I'll say it again. That's one of the many reasons that being overly patriotic is a problem for the person who is following Jesus. I will again speak from my American context about how some people here in the United States, Christians in the United States, will say things like the most important things in life are God country and family. And they mean it in that order. And I've heard people say that before. Or people will say that we have to, to have a love for God is to have a love for country. Or to serve our country is to serve God. So, and then of course, making claims that America is a Christian nation. Now, in America, fairly often people combine the kingdom of God with the country of the United States of America. Let me say this very clearly. That should not be. America is not God's country. Let me also say this. I'm glad to live in America. I enjoy the freedoms and opportunities that this country possesses. However, that does not mean that the United States should be equated with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. This this kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God is not established anywhere on earth including America. After Jesus is arrested, he is taken to a man named Pilate who is to determine what will happen with Jesus. With that context, in John 18, 33 through 38, we read this. Pilate went back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own or have others spoken to you about me? And Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus replied, My kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king, Pilate said. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. I was born and came into this world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate asked. After Pilate said this, he returned to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no grounds for any charge against him. Here not only do we see two things that are are beneficial here to uh, to the podcast. Jesus saying, my kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If, If Jesus had a kingdom of this world, he would have people who would be fighting for him. He would have armies. He would have soldiers that would be going out to keep him safe, and he never would have got arrested by the Jewish leaders. But then he also says that he came to testify about the truth, and whoever accepts the truth listens to his voice. And Pilate asks, what is truth? And that's a great answer, but we've already discussed it. We've already looked at it. And I think that's really fun to, to, to look at that and, and to see what this is. But that's apparently also a question that we need to ask in this book. What is truth? Because that question has been raised, has been raised, and we're not sure what exactly can be trusted here. But also Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom doesn't come or doesn't originate from this world. My kingdom isn't from here. If it was Pilate, 
if, if Jesus' kingdom was from this world, Pilate would have a riot on his hands, not a prisoner. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. A country declaring itself a Christian country, especially when it is the government uh, declaring this to make it an official state religion, that seems to be misguided. And to me, is a misunderstanding of what Jesus has come to establish. Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom where there is no physical border or boundary. He came to establish a heavenly kingdom where people from all places can join this kingdom, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done no matter who they are, no matter what their ancestry is, that, that he's created a kingdom that is available to everyone in all places at all times. It's available for everyone. Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. The, the, this earth is not our home. This earth is not really where our kingdom is, but we have a, a kingdom in heaven. We, we have a, a heavenly citizenship that we should be living into, that that should take a primary importance over our citizenship of whatever country we, whatever country we, we may live in. One country being established as God's heavenly kingdom doesn't make sense because God's heavenly kingdom transcends borders. It transcends places and unifies the, the universal church as we work together as one to bring glory and honor to God. The heavenly kingdom does not feed a fear of the other mentality. It rejects that mentality because God's heavenly kingdom is made up of all people from every place and nation on earth that is available to everyone. God does not have an earthly kingdom. He has a heavenly kingdom. And because of this, no nation state is God's country or kingdom. In God's kingdom, we don't have a fear of the other. We have an acceptance of the other. We do not have a hatred of the other. We have a love for the other. We do not have aggression towards the other. We have compassion towards the other. God's kingdom goes against so much of what earthly kingdoms stand for and produce. Here we see one example of this, how God's kingdom fights the fear of the other mentality that earthly kingdoms can and do produce. But as citizens in God's heavenly kingdom, a fear of the other should not be our mentality. The first chapter of this book ends with I not knowing what to do, uh, what, what to, to think about all this, and still not trusting S. Draven, even as the dinner ends. And yes, we are, you can see how far in, uh, close to over 30 minutes. And you can see that we are only one chapter in, and now I might understand why we're taking two weeks to get through this one. But chapter two is a strange chapter. We're told that this chapter is from an audio recording of a hearth tale, which is, is like a folk tale. And it's from the archives of the College of the Historians, and it was recorded during the reign of R. Gavin VIII. So we get these chapters from time to time that have nothing to do with advancing the story of I or S. Raven, but they do give us some information about Gethin. And this chapter, I feel like, could be an entire podcast in and of itself. Actually, I feel that way about many chapters in this book. So, well, this is a short chapter, only five pages, and the copy I have it leads to one of the main theological discussions that we must have when looking at the left hand of darkness. And this chapter is going to lead to a couple of uncomfortable conversations, but they're conversations that must not be avoided. Before we dive too much deeper in this chapter, we need to look at the people of Gethin and who they are and how their bodies are different than your body and my body. 
As I said in the introduction, The Left Hand of Darkness is considered to be the most famous examination of androgyny in science fiction. And again, androgyny, according to Webster's Dictionary, is having the characteristics or nature of both male and female. Essentially, the Gethians are genderless for the majority of the time. They have neither male nor female body parts. They are without gender except for a few days each month where they develop sexual organs and sexual desires. And in the book, this is known as Kemmer. The other time when the Gethians are genderless is known as Sommer. So for lack of, a better, lack of a better term, the way I understand this is that the Gethians go into heat, if you will, like if you think of that with an animal, they go into heat for a few days each month, and that is when they develop sexual organs. And five-sixths of the time, the Gethians are genderless. They have no sexual reproductive organs. To understand this better, we're going to jump around the book a little bit to see what Kemmer is and is not, and then we'll dive into a discussion of the theology of the body. In chapter 7, which is titled The Question of Sex, we have a lot of information about what Kemmer is. At one point, reread this. In this first phase of Kemmer, which is called Kar, he remains completely androgynous. Gender and potency are not attained in isolation. A Gethian in first phase Kemmer, if kept alone or with others not in Kemmer, remains incapable of coitus. Yet the sexual impulse is tremendously strong in this, in this phase, controlling the entire personality, subjecting all other drives to its imperative. When the individual finds a partner in Kemmer, hormonal secretion is further stimulated. Most importantly, by touch or secretion or scent. Those are question marks because this is just a report and just information we're given. But it's, it's, hormonal secretion is further stimulated until one partner, either a male or female, horm and until in one partner, either male or female hormonal dominance is established. The genitals engorge or shrink accordingly. Foreplay intensifies, and the partner, triggered by the change, takes on the other sexual role, without exception. If there are exceptions resulting in camera partners of the same sex, they are so rare as to be ignored. So, this is how genders are established on Gethin. But there is one line from this that stood out to me as very interesting. Yet the sexual impulse is tremendously strong in this phrase, controlling the entire personality, subjecting all other drives to its imperatives. It is interesting to me that when the Gethians first go into Kemmer, they find the sexual urge irresistible. They cannot control it. Now, obviously, you and I are not the Gethians. You are either male or female all the time. And I'll just say that in terms of biology. So biologically speaking, you are either male or female. According to the French National Center for Scientific Research, you can find their website at news.cn.com. RS.FR, here's what the French National Center for Scientific Research says. Based on the sole criterion of reproductive cells, there are only two, there are two and only two sexes. The female sex capable of producing large gametes, ovules, and the male sex which produces small gametes, spermatozoa. However, this a uh, gonadic criterion based upon reproductive glands is not the only factor on which the definition of biological gender rests. We must also consider genetic sex based on 
X and Y chromosomes, anatomical based on the appearance of the genitalia, hormonal gender based on the predominant hormones, and so on. So I'm aware that even the questions, the, the, even science questions how many biological genders there are. But according to this, based on the sole criterion of, of production of reproductive cells, there are two and only two sexes, female or male, based on biology, based on that factor. So th that, there, there we are. There are two, biologically speaking, male or female, according to the re production of reproductive cells. You, you and I have physical sexual organs all the time. And that way we are not the Gethians whose sexual organs only develop for a few days a month and go away. Now, what is interesting to me here is I wonder if Le Guin is trying to say that for those of us who are human, who always have our sexual organs, I wonder if she's trying to say that for humans, the sexual impulse is tremendously strong in this phase, controlling the entire personality, subjecting all other drives to its imperatives. Now, I'm not saying that she's saying this is true for everyone, but I know some people, and I'm sure you do too, where they have a very high sexual impulse, and all they seem to be controlled by is their desire for sex, for hooking up with other people and trying to find that and trying to be pleased in that way. Where their sexual drive controls their entire personality, it controls their entire life. And if you were to think that the Bible has little to say about sex, you would be wrong. We are sexual beings. We have a sex drive, and God actually established sex as a way to be fruitful and multiply. Even in the Ten Commandments, there's a command about sex. Do not commit adultery. Don't have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. But we are to not let our sexual desires and impulses control us. Rather, as followers of Jesus, we are to have self-control. Where... Uh, our entire personality is not controlled by sexual desire and our sexual desire is not subjecting all of the drives to its imperatives. As, as a matter of fact, our sexual drive should not control our lives. Jesus should control our lives, all aspects of our lives, including sexual desire. Also about Kemmer, we read in chapter 7, normal individuals have no predisposition to either sexual role in Kemmer. They do they do not know whether they will be the male or the female and have no choice in the matter. Adi Nim wrote that in, Orgorian, in the Orgorian region, the use of hormone derivatives to establish a preferred sexuality is quite common, but I haven't seen this done in rural carhide. Once sex is determined, it cannot change during the Kemmer period. So when things take place as they are naturally supposed to on Gethin, no one gets to decide if they will be male or female. It just happens randomly. One partner will become male, the other female. So you have some people here on this planet who are both mothers and fathers. They have given birth to children, but they have also impregnated a person who this time the roles are reversed. It could be the same person, could be a different person. But they've also impregnated a woman and are fathers. In fact, one of the more interesting lines of this book is the king was pregnant. A line we would not say here on earth that would not make sense for us, but a line that makes sense on Gethin. However, some people in the neighboring country of Agorian use hormones to try to control which partner will become male and which will become female, but that is not the way that it is supposed to be naturally. It is also not the only thing that is done to interrupt the natural process of Kemmer. At one point, we are told that drugs can be given to people 
to keep them out of Kemmer, or they can be used to skip a monthly cycle of Kemmer, or you can just stay on them and never go into Kemmer, or you can use drugs in another way so that you're always in Kemmer. So, so the, the Gethians are using unnatural means to interrupt a natural process. Hmm. And I, since he is a male human, he's considered by some to be in a permanent state of Kemmer. Well, we'll learn a little bit more about Kemmer here uh, and there as we go throughout the book. But this is kind of a general overview. And enough for now, uh, I think, it, but having this discussion naturally leads us into a discussion on the theology of the body. Uh, to begin this, let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We people are created in the image and likeness of God. And God calls that creation very good. God creates the body and the soul and calls them good. So physical matter is not evil. Your body is not evil. God created and he creates it in the image and likeness, and he calls that good. And God creates men and women, male and female people, in his image. Men are not created to be above or more than women, and women were not created to be above or more than men. Both male and female are made in God's image, and both are good. One is not above the other in terms of status or greatness. Now, there are undeniable differences in men and women. Undeniable differences. But differences doesn't mean that one is better. It just means that they are different. Now, in an article on seedbed.com about his book, For the Body, Timothy Tennant puts it this way. Creation is good, and our bodies are trustworthy. God created us with a joyful union of body and spirit because the goodness of creation flows out of the very nature and character of God. The created order has inherent moral boundaries. Therefore, our bodies embody moral agency. Creation is good, and in order to maintain the goodness of creation, there are established moral boundaries that are inherent to creation. The way I understand this is to maintain the goodness of the body as God intended it, there are things that we should do or things that we should not do with our bodies. If God is the author of goodness, the true creator of everything, then living according to his ways will help maintain the goodness of creation as originally attended, even when we are living in a fallen world. So what we do with our bodies matter. It makes a difference. The physical things we do with our bodies impacts not only our bodies, but also our minds and our souls and our very being. What we do with our body impacts the whole person. It's all impacted by what we do with our bodies. But are our bodies really good? Is everybody's body good? I mean, even mine, I, I have, what, 17 different things I could tell you right now that I want to change about my body, right? There's all these things that I look at and I'm like, oh, I would change this or that or that. But so, so what about people who don't like their bodies? 
What about people who feel trapped in their bodies, who just distrust their bodies? What about people who feel they should have a different gender identity other than their biological gender? Is their body still good? Again, we're going to look at Tenet, and this time we're actually going to look at his book, For the Body. In chapter one of that book, he writes this. It is not uncommon for someone who is struggling with their gender identity to declare that although they are biologically a male, they feel trapped in their body which is masking their true identity as a female or vice versa. Gender identity is becoming decoupled from any of the normal biological markers that have distinguished male and female since the creation of the world. The decoupling of gender identity from biology is already being incorporated into our legal system. Increasingly, any notion that we should trust our body's biological gender marker is considered an unwarranted assumption. However, this violates the Christian view which is to trust the inherent goodness of the physical order in general and of our created bodies in particular. Later on in that chapter, Tenet writes, Christianity has traditionally taught that the heart is deceitful, Jeremiah 17.9, but the body is trustworthy because it was created to be the dwelling place of God himself, in 1 John 4.2 and 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. Today, the emergent assumption is precisely the opposite. The heart is considered to be trustworthy, to be a trustworthy guide, but your body might deceive you. This has led to the growing attitude that the body gives us no clues as to our true identity. The body has no story to tell. In short, matter does not matter. In contrast, a Christian theology of the body points to a tremendous positive view of the material body. We believe that our bodies have a story to tell. In short, your body matters. Tenet makes a great point about how our hearts are deceptive. How we cannot just trust our hearts and the feelings that we have, and why not? Because of the fall. We've talked about this before, but we all have a sin nature within us, so we cannot always trust what we feel, and we cannot always trust our heart. In fact, we can only trust our heart when it is a renewed heart, made new through being born again and accepting Jesus. And we cannot have a discussion on the theology of the body without looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, which um, was just mentioned here by uh, Dr. Tennant in his book. It says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Here we see in part why what we do with our bodies matter. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have been bought with a price. And Paul writes here that sexual sin affects the body in ways that other sins do not. Lying cannot give you a physical disease or a literal infection. But sexual activity can. Sexual sin can do that. It can affect the body in ways that other sins cannot. And we have received our bodies from God, and our bodies are good. Our hearts, our feelings, our thoughts, those have been fallen because of the the fall. Those things are there, and they can't be trusted until they are renewed by Jesus. Now, our bodies have also been affected by the fall, which is why I think things like sickness and illness and cancer and things like that exist. But there is still a goodness to creation. The fall doesn't take away the goodness of what God has done. And God has still chosen our very bodies as the dwelling place for him 
to be temples of the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can come and dwell within us. One more question to ask here and to look at with the idea of the androgynous characters in Kemmer. If Le Guin is right and science fiction is descriptive, not predictive, what is she trying to do with the world of Gethin? What is she describing? What is the point she's trying to make? Now, my understanding here is that Le Guin is wanting to describe a world where there are not divisions of men and women. Left Hand of Darkness, again, when it came out in 1969, and uh, it came out in 1969, while we do not live in a world where... Well, while we do not live in a world today in 2022 where men and women are equal, we don't live in that world. Let's not pretend that we do. Men and women are are not equal in a number of different ways. But it was even worse in 1969. We've come some, we've made some progress since 1969. So when this novel comes out, it comes out in the middle of what is called the second wave of feminism, which took place in the 60s, 1960s and 1970s. According to Britannica.com, this, this, part of the, this time of the second wave of feminism represented a seemingly abrupt break with the tranquil suburban life pictured in American popular culture. Yet the roots of the new rebel were buried in the frustrations of college-educated mothers whose discontent impelled their daughters in a new direction. Britannica.com continues explaining this about a 19... 19- 63 report from the President's Commission on the Status of Women. This report said that there was a national pattern of employment discrimination, unequal pay, legal inequality, and meager support services for working women that needed to be corrected through legislative guarantees of equal pay for equal work, equal job opportunities, and expanded child care services. The Equal Pay Act of 1963 offered the first guarantee, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was amended to bar employees from discriminating on the basis of sex. Well, I'm glad all that legislation took care of all those issues for us, right? Of course it didn't. And, and we still are in America dealing with those issues today. So I think what Le Guin is trying to do is writing from a time where these problems are front and center in the national spotlight. And what she's attempting to do is describe a world where there's no difference between men and women in terms of physical size or strength, in terms of position or power or opportunities or pay. She wants to level the playing field. And how can that be done? For Le Guin in The Left Hand of Darkness, it is done by removing the differences between men and women for five-sixths of the time and then... The other one-sixth of the time, sometimes you can be a man and sometimes you will be a woman. It just depends on whatever happens in that natural Kemmer cycle. So it's by removing the differences between men and women for the majority of the time and allowing the Gethians to experience what it is to be both male and female from a physical perspective, the, the playing field is leveled by that. I think Le Guin wants a world where there is true equality, where men and women are truly equal where one is not taller or stronger than the other, where one does not make more money than the other, where one does not have more opportunities than the other, where one does not get more emotional than the other, where one is not considered better than the other. Le Guin wants true equality, and she's writing it, and I think that she's trying to find it here, writing about it on Gethin. But Le Guin didn't have to look that far to find equality. In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, we read this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, 
clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are all children of God. Men and women in the kingdom of God are equal. I think in many ways, in many churches, we've got this wrong. And that may be a discussion for another day. But men and women are equal in God's eyes. Men are not better or any more deserving or any of anything than women are. Are men and women different? Yes. Does God use that difference to distinguish men and women in his kingdom? No, no, no. We just read that. That we are all one in Christ. That there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. So Le Guin is looking for equality for men and women, which is a great idea, something that I would fully support in terms of opportunity and pay and all these different things. Yes, equality should be there. That's what she's looking for. But what she is looking for should be found in the church. That's what we should have. That's what we should have in the church. And I think that we don't. I think we've messed that up for a while in a number of different ways. But it's interesting to me that what society wants should be found in the church. The church should provide. And perhaps if we have done a better job of this, the more people from outside the church would be attracted to the church because this is who we should be. A place where men and women are looked at as being equal. Where they are both given opportunities to serve and to feel calls into ministry. Where they both have the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given them to the best of their abilities in whatever way that it may be from being on stage, to preaching, to leading worship, to volunteering for different programs, whatever it may be, the equality between men and women should be found in the church. And it's interesting to me that that's what the society wants and that they should find it in the church of Jesus Christ. But the church just hasn't done a great job of that. So we need to do better because we are all one in Christ. For we are all baptized into Christ, and we are all one with him. Male and female, there is no distinction. We are all heirs with Christ, as we are all children of God. Back to the book, and that is Kemmer and our very brief discussion on the theology of the body. I cannot recommend the book For the Body by Dr. Tim Tennant enough. Uh, I've already mentioned it. Uh, It is great, and I encourage you to pick that up. There's also some, uh, if you want to go through that with a small group, they have leader guides with it you can get and also dvd uh videos or, or or a number of different ways digital videos that you can buy for that too so if you go to seedbed.com you can find all those things all those resources I, I encourage you to check that out and to get that book well in chapter two we read about two brothers and i question why they're called brothers in light of what we've just discovered about the gethians who uh, but but they are referred to as brothers. Then shouldn't they just be referred to as siblings since they are not gendered most of the time? But anyway, they are referred to as brothers. And oh, can we just skip this chapter? This is not a comfortable chapter to talk about. All right, we won't do it. Well, these two brothers, they do what is called, uh, they, they vow Kemmerine to each other. Yes, these two brothers, they seek to come together to make a child. And they do. And that's okay in Gethin. At least in some countries and some regions are okay with it. The, the siblings, brothers, are allowed to have a child together. But only one child together. After they have had 
after they've done that which is necessary to produce a child, which is still what the the Gethians do, what we do to produce children. So once they've done that and have produced a child, then they must cease all sexual activity they, with each other. They, they, they can only produce one child and then they can never be together again. This is not the only time we read about incest in the left hand of darkness. If we go back to chapter 7, the chapter we learn the most about, every the, the, the chapter we learn almost everything about Kemmering from, we read this. Incest is permitted with various restrictions between siblings, even the full siblings of a vowed Kemmering pair. Siblings are not, however, allowed to vow Kemmering or keep Kemmering after the birth of a child to one of the pair. Incest between generations is strictly forbidden. In Carhide or Orgonian, but it is said to be permitted among the tribesmen of Perunter, the Antarctic continent, but this may be slandered. So that is um, unsettling. But does the Bible talk about incest? Well, yes. God makes it incredibly clear what his sexual expectations are regarding incest. It is wrong. In Leviticus 18, 6 through 18, we read this. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. So that's in if your father has married somebody who's not your biological mother. Do not have sexual relations with your stepmom. Makes sense. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife. Born to your father, she is your sister. So don't have sex with your half-sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She's your father's close relative. Don't have sex with your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Doesn't matter which side it's on. Don't have sex with your aunt. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. So even if it's an aunt-in-law, don't have sex with them. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives. This is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Because sometimes if your wife would pass away, you can marry your sister because of family things and cultural whatever. whatever. So, But anyway, don't have sex with your sister-in-law. Pretty simple, right? And even though that's written in the Old Testament, it still applies. Don't do it. Don't have sexual relations with those people. Because only remain faithful to your spouse. Do not commit adultery. That still applies. Remain faithful to your spouse. So, can we move on now? When it comes to having sexual relations with relatives, don't. Just don't. It's disturbing to me that such relations are allowed on Gethin. That is, that such a thing would be okay. And it's strange to me that it's okay for siblings to come together to have one child, but then don't have any more. If they could do that once, why couldn't they do it twice? This is a weird moral ethic. If something's okay to do it once, but after you do it once, it's not okay to do it any longer, what kind of logic is there? And you can only do this once, but don't do it twice? Because it's okay once you've done it the first time, but not what you've done it the second time? That is some very inconsistent moral ethic. And where there are moral inconsistencies like that, there is a problem with the moral ethical code. 
of a society or a people or whatever it may be. So in the story in chapter two, the two brothers have a child and then are commanded by the ruler of their hearth, which is an extended family unit in, in Gethin. The ruler of their family, essentially, he tells the brothers that now that they've had a child together, they can never meet in Kemmer again because they can only do that once. So once they're commanded to never come together in Kemmer again, we read this. On hearing this command, one of the two, the one who bore the child, despaired and would not and would hear no comfort or counsel and procuring poison committed suicide so again we come to a familiar topic on this podcast suicide we've talked about it before but in this situation it seems to me that the one brother would rather be dead than to not be with his lover who happens to be his brother I'm not sure how often this is a cause of suicide, not being able to be with a person that you might be with. I'm not sure about that, but I know that just because you cannot, for whatever reason, be with the person you want to be, that does not mean that you are worthless or that you have lost value or that life will never change or that things will never get better. There's still hope out there and there's still hope for you. And as always, if you have thoughts of self-harm or suicide, please seek help. Seek help from trained professionals. Tell someone about your thoughts and your ideas. If you need to call someone, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline in America. You can find that by calling 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. And I know we have some international listeners, so I encourage you to look up the National Hotline for Suicide Prevention in your country if you are struggling with this. Most countries in the world have that kind of line. There's help out there, and you should seek help when you need help. You can also text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, the word HOME, to 741741. So that's the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. You can text that, and a real person will respond to your texts. And you can text them with any struggles you're going through, whether it's anxiety, depression, struggling in school, whether it's suicidal thoughts, whatever it may be. If you text HOME to 741741, someone will be there to help and to talk with you. So if you are having these thoughts, if you are thinking about self-harm or suicide, please reach out and contact someone. There is help available. But in chapter 2, the one brother who is living, uh, his name is uh, Getherin. So we're on the planet Gethin, but his name is Getherin. So Getharen is kicked out of his hearth because here suicide is shameful. And since the other brother's death, Hode is the one who has killed himself, since Hode, since his death was caused by the relationship with his brother Getharen, Getharen is kicked out. Kind of a strange dynamic there too. So Getharen curses his hometown and wanders and searches for anyone to take him in and he'll find no one. And finally he sees his brother Hode in a vision. And we read this. Getharen said, who are you? The white man said, I'm your brother in Kemmerine Hode. Hode was the name of his brother who had killed himself. And Getherin saw that the white man was his brother in body and feature, but there was no longer any life in his belly. And his voice sounded thin like the creaking of ice. Getherin asked, what is this place? And Hode answered, this is the place inside the blizzard. We who kill ourselves dwell here. We're not told much else about this place. We know that it's just called the place inside the blizzard. 
But of course, it leads to a question that has been asked often, that even I have been asked in my years of ministry. What happens to people if they commit suicide? Can someone who commits suicide go to heaven? Wow. I'm glad we're not talking about any difficult subjects today. Who picked this book? Actually, this is why I picked this book, because I don't want to run away from hard, real-life issues, but face them and deal with them. And quite honestly, listener, this is the most difficult episode I've done, and probably is going to be the most difficult episode that I'm going to do for a long time. And not just because I'm not going to tackle other issues or look at other things, but because this is one of the most difficult books for me to deal with from a theological perspective, tackling some really tough issues. But I'm not going to run away from them. So the question remains, can someone commit suicide and go to heaven? If you were to Google this question, you will find many different positions on it. Some saying yes, some saying no, both trying to make a biblical case for their argument. But the fact remains that we're not given the answer to this question in the Bible. So both sides, a yes and a no answer to this, would use Scripture as a whole to try to answer this question. But because there is no specific verse or passage that answers this question, I wish I could tell you an answer today, but for me, I simply will say, I don't know. And actually, I'm good with that answer. Because when we are talking about who gets to make it into heaven and who doesn't, that's not my decision. And I don't have an answer for this particular question, but what I do have is a trust and a certainty that God in his mercy, love, grace, justice, compassion, wisdom, knowledge, and authority does have the answer to this question and that he will, as he always does, he will make the right decision. I am trusting in God to make the call here and not in me. I don't know the answer, but I do know that you are loved and wanted by God and that when you struggle, God knows that and God is with you in the struggle and he wants you to get the help that you need because you are worth it. So again, if you need to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline in America, it is 1-800-273-8255 or you can text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. To talk with a real person about your struggles, I encourage you to reach out if you are struggling. In the book, Gethryn ends up running from the vision with his brother and eventually finds a place that will take him in and he lifts the curse on his hometown and things improve there. So we move on to chapter three and we go back to I in the main story and he is preparing for this meeting with the king. And he thought his meeting with the king would include S. Raven, but now it does not. And then I is, he's psyching himself up for this meeting, and we read this. One voice speaking truth is a greater force than fleets and armies, given enough time, plenty of time. One voice speaking truth is is a greater force than fleets and armies. Is that really the case? Is it true that, is truth more powerful than armies and nations and warriors and soldiers? If this has ever been true, it has been true for Jesus. Jesus made more of a difference in this world than anyone ever has, and it is because he spoke truth. It is because he is truth. His truth was, has been, is, and always will be a greater force than fleets and armies. Truth is powerful, and we see that in the life of Jesus. 
Aya is taken to meet the king, and we find out why Estraven is not there. The king is listening to the radio, and there's a report that Estraven has been exiled for treason and has three days to leave Carhide. It is said that he has tried to sell control of Carhide to an organization called the Union of Peoples, and therefore he is exiled. I asked the king if he is implicated in Estraven's treason, and here is the response by King Argaven. I asked him, am I implicated in Estraven's treason? And King Argaven says, you? No. He stared even more closely at me. I don't know what the devil you are, Mr. I, a sexual freak or an artificial monster or a visitor from the domains of the void, but you are not a traitor. You've merely been the tool of one. I don't punish tools. They do harm only in the hands of a bad workman. Remember how we mentioned R. Gavin's understanding of patriotism and how, well, I don't know if we did actually, but so earlier when we were talking about patriotism, I don't know if I mentioned this, but when, when S. Raven is asking I about patriotism, he also mentions R. Gavin's patriotism and how it has led to him being, him having fear as well. So when he's talking about patriotism, he's talking really about what has happened with Argaven's patriotism. His patriotism is really just a fear of the other. And we see that here with this conversation that he has here with the king. He's afraid of I. And we see that his fear and also his dislike of the other that the, the we discussed earlier with that idea of patriotism is seen here in what Argaven says. And also... What a low view of others the king has. It is just sad to see how low of a view of others the king has here. The king and I discuss why I is there and the ecumen. At one point we read, I say this. I've made no secret of it, sir. The ecumen want an alliance with the nations of Gethin. What for? The king asks. And here's I's response. Material profit, increase of knowledge, the augmentation of the complexity and intensity of the field of intelligent life, the enrichment of harmony and the greater glory of God, curiosity, adventure, delight. It stood out to me that I is making an argument that Gethin should join the ecumen, and when they do that, it would bring glory to God. Why would that bring glory to God? Because more people are working together? Because people are getting along? That is certainly not the first or second or third mention that I, reason that my, uh, I mentions for wanting the Gethians to join the ecumen. The first is material profit. They want to do this for money. I, I, I must really be trying to make a push for the Gethians to join the ecumen as it's uh, appealing to, to God's glory to do so. But would this really be glorifying God to... Have is this what brings glory to God coming together, a planet joining an interplanetary trade commission for the point for, for the reason of material profit and increase in knowledge and the augmentation of complexity and intensity in the field of intelligent life? The enrichment of is, is this really what would bring glory to God? And if not, what does? Well, in Philippians 1 9 through 11, reread this. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What brings God glory when you live how God wants you to live?
being righteous, living for God, following God's way. When we do that, we live into righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And when we live into that righteousness, we bring glory to God. The way we live brings glory to God. That's how we can bring glory to God. When we live the way that he wants us to live, when we give him the, the, the credit and the honor for the things that are happening in our lives and how he's watched over us and how he's cared for us and we worship him for who he is. That's how we bring glory to God, not through joining an interplanetary trade commission. Throughout the conversation, though, between Argaven and I, the king, uh, the, the, the king has a lot of mistrust and a lot of fear of the other patriotism is seen some more. And after I tells Argaven that the Ecumen will open the door for the Gethians to join uh, I, he uh, says this, I was sent alone and remain here alone in order to make it impossible for you to fear me. Fear you? said the king, turning his shadow-scarred face, grinning, speaking loud and high. But I do not fear you, envoy. I fear those who sent you. I fear liars. I fear tricksters. And worse, I fear the bitter truth. And so I rule my country well. Because only fear rules men. Nothing else works. Nothing else lasts long enough. Only fear rules men. Only fear rules people. Fear can be used as a way to rule over people and to control them, but it's a bad way of control. Fear used to control can only take you so far, and we have talked about fear again on this podcast, and we're not going to dive into this too much because, so next week we'll be looking, here's what's coming up next, not next week, the next episode we'll be looking at part two, the last 10 chapters of the left hand of darkness, but after that, we're going to, tell, to dive into the movie Dune that came out last year. So Dune Part 1 from 2021, that's what we're going to be looking at. And man, they have such a great line in there about how fear is the mind killer. So we're really going to look at fear when that comes out because it's such a great line. But for, for, for now, so that's just a, a little bit of a preview. But for now, we can see that fear can be used to control people, but it's a bad means of controlling people because it only takes you so far. In 1 John 4, 16 through 18, we read this. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear has to do with punishment and fear only takes people so far in any kind of relationship. Fear only can take you so far. Fear is not a good primary motivator to get people to do something or to keep them loyal because fear has to do with punishment. So fear creates a, a cosmic kind of scale with pleasure on the one side and punishment on the other. Or loyalty on the one side and punishment on the other. Or following someone on the one side and punishment on the other. So there's a constant weighing of the scales to see which one will win, which one outweighs the other. Is fear going to win or some the punishment and fear going to win or something going to outweigh that on my scales? But with love, that doesn't exist. You don't have to, uh, you, you don't have to weigh if you're going to remain loyal to someone or love them because loyalty and love go hand in hand. You don't have to worry about getting punished for doing something you enjoy because love wants you to enjoy things in life. Love wants what is best for you and and you want what is best for what you or what or who you love. But fear 
You just don't want to get caught doing something so you won't get punished. So fear can be a motivator or a method to control people, but it's a weak, it's a faulty, it's a poor motivator, and it only takes people so far. And I think that is what Argaven knows. He knows fear, both being afraid of a lot of things and also making people fear him. His whole rule is tied up in fear. So we must, must ask how good of a ruler is he? And well, I imagine that you can figure out the answer to that question yourself. Argaven rejects joining the Ecumen and I feels defeated. And I thinks about going to Agorian, uh, the neighboring country, uh, maybe trying to get them to join the Ecumen. But first he has more to learn on Carhide. He wants to gather some more information about somebody called the Foretellers. We jump in now to chapter four. That's where chapter three leaves us, wondering who the Foretellers are. But we jump to chapter four, which is another chapter that does not advance the main story, but gives some information about who the Foretellers are as we read a very sad story. We hear of two partners who have vowed Cameron to each other, Barasti and Herber. Barasti goes to the foretellers and he asks them, what day will I die? And the foretellers, this is what the reply is. He will die on the 19th day of the month. But they don't tell him which month or they don't tell him which year, that it will just happen on the 19th day of a month. So he becomes worried and he lives in fear of what month he will die. And this worry consumes him. This worry consumes Barasti. So his partner, Herber, goes to the foretellers, and the foretellers say to Herber that there is usually a price you have to pay to get them to answer a question. But they do not charge Herber, but they do warn him that there will be a price to pay if they answer his question. So Herber asks, how long will Barasti live? And the answer is longer than Herber. So Herber returns home and tells Barasti he has gone to see the foretellers. And Barasti says, did you ask them when I would die then? And Herber responds, I asked them how long you would live. And apparently for Barasti, that was the wrong question to ask as it doesn't provide the clarity that he is, is looking for. And in a fit of rage, Barasti kills Herber. And then on the 19th day of the next month, Barasti hangs himself and commits suicide. We've already discussed suicide, but I will say this again. If you are having those thoughts, please, please, please seek help. And we learned something interesting in this chapter about the foretellers. They are sneaky. They will give answers, but not always direct answers. It's almost like they give answers in a riddle or they give ambiguous answers and there's never a lot of clarity. But Still, I, I think this is just such a sad story. And, and of course, as well, we should also say that murder is not the answer. Even when a partner makes you mad, don't murder them. Don't do what Barasti does. Don't do that. But in Chapter 5, moving on, I plans to leave uh, Aranrang, the capital of Carhide. And he asks his landlady for advice. And at one point we read that the landlady discovers that I has no Shifgrathor. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this that word right or not. Shifgrathor is how I'm going to say it. So this is not the first time if you've read the book that we see this word Shifgrathor and this idea of it and wondering what it means. Back in chapter one, here's what we read about Shifgrathor. No doubt this was all a matter of Shifgrathor. Prestige, face, place, the pride, relationship, the untransmittable and all-important principle of social authority in Carhide and all civilizations of Gethin. And if it was, 
I would not understand it. So I, even though he's been there for a couple of years, does not understand what's going on here. He doesn't understand this idea of Shifgrathor. On a website called litcharts.com, here's how they define the idea of Shifgrathor. An untransmittable and all-important principle of social authority in Carhide, and also across Gethin. It refers to personal pride and honor, both of which must be maintained by the individual, and respected by those who they interact with. Shifgrathor comes from the Kardish word for shadow. So Shifgrathor, as I understand it, is your social standing on your planet. It is your pride. It, it is your honor. It is how others view you and how you view yourself. And it's something that you must maintain. And to me, that just sounds so exhausting. It sounds like Shifgrathor is just keeping up appearances. That people, you make sure people treat you how you're supposed to be treated. That you keep up your social standing and you make sure that others see the honor and the pride that you have. This seems to me to go against the Christian principle of humility. Humility in which we consider others better than ourselves, in which we put the interests of others before our own interests. Humility where we do not have to make every one know the honor and pride that we have, but living in a way that brings glory to God, not to ourselves. That brings honor to God, not to ourselves. The idea of Shifgrathor is seen throughout the book, so I just thought it was worth mentioning here and what that was. Another thing that stood out to me that I thought worth mentioning, and this is a positive thing from the planet Gethin, is when I is traveling, we read this. Gethians can make their vehicles go faster, but they do not. If asked why, the answer, why? Like asking Terrans or people on Earth, why all our vehicles must go fast, we answer, why not? No disputing tastes. Terrains tend to feel they've got to get ahead make progress. The people of Winter or Gethin, who always live in the year one, feel that progress is less important than presence. I really like that. They feel that progress is less important than presence. What a great line and a line that I think that we could use to hear and and that we could actually learn from in the world today. So many times in American life, it's all about progress, finishing school, going to college, getting a job, climbing the career ladder, higher and higher and higher. Always concerned about personal progress and missing out, at being in, missing out on being in the presence of people who matter most and who are closest to you in your life and who are your loved ones. Or, or we just say this, uh, could just say this as a society, right? The society tells us you have to progress to a better house, to a better car, to a bigger this or a bigger that, or we have to advance in this area, or we have to keep progressing and progressing and progressing while relationship and presence can be left behind because we got to move forward and we've got to press, we've got to be greater than this country, we've got to be greater than those people, or whatever it may be. And we value progress more than presence, but not so for the Gethians. They value presence over progress, and I really like that and think that we could learn something from them. What are we valuing most? The presence with people, the presence of God with us, or are we valuing progress, either in a technological or monetary or social sociological kind of a sense? Are we valuing progress or presence? 
On the radio, I finds out that Tib has replaced S. Raven as the new prime minister, and I travels to where a fastness is. Now, a fastness is a place where the foretellers are, and it's also a religious retreat for the religion of Handarada. So, here we are introduced to a religion on the planet Gethin, Handarada. So, what is the Handarada religion? What is their structure? What do they believe? Well, let's take a look at this. About Handarada, we read this. The Handarada is a religion without institution, without priests, without hierarchy, without vows, without creed. I am still unable to say whether it has a god or not. That's how I has come to understand the Handarada. But I don't know how, if that's true, how this is even a religion. But we continue. It is elusive. It is always somewhere else. Only fixed manifestation is in the fastness retreats to which people may retire and spend the night or a lifetime. I wouldn't have been pursuing this curiosity, a curiously intangible cult into its secret places at all if I hadn't wanted the answer to the question left, un left unanswered by the investigators. What are the foretellers and what do they actually do? So here I calls this a cult. That's interesting. And the, this curiously intangible cult. But I'm still wondering what Handrata really, Handarata really is. And I don't know, but let's try to find out a little bit more from this book. So people who practice Handarata have something also called, they, they can have something called hysterical strength, where they can go into this kind of a trance where they can do things for a very long time and be very strong in ways that that they can't do otherwise. So uh, once I see some people doing this, he comes to believe some of those old tales he's heard about some people doing things that are unbelievable because practitioners of Handarata can have fits of hysterical strength. About Handarata on litcharts.com, we also read this. Although the Handarata have mastered the art of seeing the future through the foretellers, Handarata believes no question is worth asking. As everyone already knows the answer to the final question, death. Handarada believe the only way to keep on living is to live in ignorance, as though they do not know what is coming next. So they can tell the future, they just don't believe there's a benefit to knowing the future. It's interesting. The Handarada actually don't want answers, and they try to avoid them, but it is hard, they say. And I finds the foretellers and thinks about speaking to them in mind speech. So that's something new we've learned, which is, you've guessed it, mind speech is telepathic communication. Uh, and it's a telepathic communication where if you are using this, you cannot lie. You're not capable. If you try to tell a lie, somebody's going to know it because you have a mind link with them. So that's something else we learn about I that is common for those who work for the acumen to be trained in mind speech. And I is capable of that. But I asks the foretellers, who are quite the interesting group of people. We won't get into that. We're already, time's already adding up here. I asks the foretellers, who are quite the interesting group of people. They are very interesting. You can read more about them. We don't have time to get into who they are because, well, you can see we have already been going for a while here and still have a ways to go. But I asks them, will this world, Gethin, be a member of the Ecumen five years from now? And eventually, they give the answer, yes. Gethin will be a part of the Ecumen five years from now. 
At the end of this chapter, one of the foretellers asks, uh, what is sure, predictable, inevitable? The one certain thing you know concerning your future and mind, and I says that we shall die. And the foreteller says, yes. There's really only one question that can be answered, I, and we already know the answer. The only thing that makes life possible is permanent, intolerable uncertainty, not knowing what comes next. Huh? Is that really what makes life possible, not knowing? This is important to the Handerata who do not want answers, who do not seek answers, who try to avoid answers. And maybe they do that because they don't like the answers they might find. Because I, I do know what, I'm, well, I, I do not know what hope Handerata provides. But it doesn't appear like it provides much hope, maybe even no hope at all. They don't want to know what's next. They want to live in this uncertainty. They don't want to think about death and what that is. And I think probably it's because they have no hope because for them, they think that's a finality. But for the Christian, we have hope and a lot of hope. We can know and seek answers because our hope is in Jesus Christ. And that is a hope that is based on assurance that Jesus will save. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, we read this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied above anybody else, what Paul writes, because our hope is not just in this world. Continuing later in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57, Paul writes this. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. But when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The death, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is hope. We are okay with knowing and seeking answers because we know the God in who our faith is placed. We know that he is in control and that he is loving, that he is good, that he is almighty. We can seek answers because we know the answer giver. We can seek answers because we have hope, hope both for this world, but not only for this world, for we also have hope in the world to come. We move on to chapter six and something happens for the first time in the left hand of darkness. And we still have a first person storytelling. But we switch perspectives here. This story is no longer told from I's perspective in chapter 6, but it's now told from Estraven's perspective. So Estraven has known his exile was coming, but he didn't think it would happen so soon. He packs quickly and is ready to go, but writes to his old Camarine, Ash, and also notices before he leaves that his cook has left him as much food as he could so that he could have something on his journey. And here's what we read about his cook leaving some food behind for him. Estraven writes, That kindness saved me, and also saved my courage. For whenever on the road I ate of that fruit and bread, I thought, There's one man thinks me no traitor. 
for he gave me this. This simple act of kindness makes all the difference for Esther even. And that stood out to me, how the little things we do for someone, such as giving them food, can make such a big difference. Perhaps it really is the small, everyday acts of kindness that keep the darkness at bay. But after three days of traveling, Estraven arrives at a place called uh, Cusaben, and his old Cameroon Ash is there waiting for him. We find that that Ash and Estraven were together for seven years, and they have two sons together. And it appears that Estraven thought they would be together forever, but three years ago, Ash became a celibate foreteller, and the two are no longer together although they still have feelings for each other. And we read this. We had not seen each other those three years, yet seeing his face in the twilight under the arch of stone, I felt the old habit of our love, as if it had been broken yesterday, and knew the faithfulness in him that had sent him to share my ruin. And feeling that unveiling bond close to me anew, I was angry, for Ash's love had always forced me to act against my heart. Is that love? If someone's love always forced you to act against your heart, to act against what you knew to be right, to act against your feelings, is that love? If the term heart here is used in the sense of doing what you know is right, or acting how you know you should act, or 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 feeling the, the way that you feel, if heart is used in that sense, then is this really love? Because to me, that seems more like manipulation than love if Ash's love always forced him to go against his heart. So if you don't want to do something and your partner says, if you really loved me, you would fill in the blank for whatever that may be. And it's something that you don't really want to do or know that you shouldn't do. Is that really love? If you loved me, you would really fill in the blank. But I don't want to do that. And you know I don't want to do that. But you're asking me to. And now you're using love as a reason for that. So you're manipulating through love. Or if they say something like, "Uh, I can't believe you won't do this for me because you say you love me. Whatever this may be. If somebody has to say that to you, is that really love? Or is that just using love as manipulation? It's using love as manipulation. That's what it is. You want an answer to that? I suppose it would be good to know in what way Ash's love has always forced Estraven to act against his heart. But if it is in a manipulative way, then that is not love. So Ash offers to come with Estraven, but Estraven will not allow it. And Estraven says that he is that, that, that he had vowed Kemrine to someone else before he vowed it with Ash, but that other person who he first vowed it with is dead. I, I think he died before S. Raven and Ash vowed Kemrine, it appears. And because S. Raven had vowed Kemrine to someone else first, it wasn't a real vow when he vowed Kemrine to Ash. Uh, so there was no vow that was broken. It's kind of strange. So, But we're not told who that someone was that he had vowed Kemrine with to begin with. So um, there's some discussion here whether the vow was broken between him and Ash or not. But since Estraven made a vow with somebody before he made one with Ash. The second vow doesn't count because he had already made a first one. It's kind of my understanding there. It's a weird thing, but I think it's going to come back into play later. Maybe. So I thought it worth mentioning here. Uh, and in his journey, um, while Estraven doesn't allow Ash to come with him, and um, Estraven leaves and, and leaves Ash behind. 
But in his journey, S. Raven comes to believe that Tib has sent people to get in his way of leaving Carhide because if he isn't out in three days, he can be legally killed. So S. Raven is trying to find a way out. He can't get anybody to help him because he knows that Tib is against him. So S. Raven finally steals a boat to be able to row to Orgorian and some of Tib's men shoot at S. Raven and they use a gun that paralyzes him. But a Carhide patrol boat picks up S. Raven and S. Raven, although he cannot move or speak, he hears this. This is what we read. I felt them. So, so he gets picked up from this boat and here's what S. Raven writes i felt them look down at me but could not well understand what they said except for one the ship's master by his tone he said if it's it's not the sixth hour yet which is the time that s raven needs to be out of carhide it's not the sixth hour yet and again answering another what affair of mine is that if the king exiled him i'll follow the king's order no lesser man's i really like that I really like this captain what he says. I'll follow the king's order and no lesser man's. He is going to follow what his king has ordered and no one else. That is the way it should be for followers of Jesus. I will follow Jesus' order, no other persons, because Jesus is king. That's how we should view it. That's how we should be viewing this, that we are going to follow Jesus and Jesus alone, for Jesus is king. Then we continue reading this. So against radio commands from Tib's men ashore and against the arguments of his mates who feared retribution, that officer of the patrol took me across the Gulf of uh, Karasun and set me ashore in Sheltport and Orgorian, where he did... Whether he did this in Shifgrathor against Tib's men who would kill an unarmed man or in kindness, I do not know. The admirable is inexplicable. The admirable is inexplicable. That is an interesting line to me. And while that may be true for some, it should not be true for the Christian. We have a reason. We have an explanation for why we do admirable acts because we want to live like Jesus. And living for Jesus and loving God and loving others should compel us to do things to help our fellow humans. Of course, those works do not save us. That's not why we do them. But those works should flow out of our relationship that we have with Jesus. We find out that S. Raven has used some hysterical strength. He is the practitioner of Handarada duty and, and can use them. He's done that to be able to row away from Tib's men. But he didn't have time to properly recover and he ends up in the hospital. Eventually, S. Raven calls an Oregonian government official he knows, Yigi, who introduces him to Absol, another government official, and they're worried about the situation in the Sinoth Valley between Carhide and Oregonian, and they think that it could lead to war, which would be unusual on Gethin, and we'll find out why in the next episode, why war would be unusual. But S. Raven tells the two about I and what he's doing, and they are intrigued and admit that I has actually requested permission to enter Orgorian. In chapter 7, we go into that next. I've already mentioned it, and this was the, the one that's titled The Question of Sex, and it's from the field notes of an investigator that explored Gethin 40 years before I arrived. We're not going to talk about it too much because we've already looked at it to understand what Kemmering is. But there is one thing that's interesting here. There's speculation that the Gethians were the result of an experiment. Reread this. 
Human genetic manipulation was certainly practiced by the colonizers. Nothing else explains the healths of eth or the degenerate winged hominoids of Rokanan. Uh, but will anything else explain Gethian sexual physiology? Accident, possibly. Natural selection, hardly. Their ambisexuality has little or no adaptive value. All right. The hard topics continue as we look at the ethics of human genetic manipulation because that's what the speculation is here, that the Gethians are the way they are because they've been genetically manipulated. They've been an experiment. They've been somebody that's been doing scientific tests on a group of people, and here's been the result. Well, just a little research into human genetic engineering, and the results are worrisome. There are some really good things that could happen with 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 genetic manipulation, or sometimes it is called genetic engineering, which I think makes genetic engineering sounds much better to me than genetic manipulation. And I think there's probably a reason that we go with the engine that the people who are in the human genetic field go with the word engineering instead of the word manipulation. I think there's probably a reason for that. There's some really good things that could possibly happen with genetic manipulation or engineering as I understand it. There could be cures to diseases or cancers if I'm understanding this correctly. Now I've stepped out of my wheelhouse here, but but that, that's what I've under, understood this to be, that there's some things that could happen there that we could cure some things that would be really good. But there are also things that genetic engineering could give or produce in people that raise some questions. The question raised in general is how much should we be genetically engineering people? How much should we be changing genes? I will say this definitively. There should be no genetic manipulation or genetic engineering on people who have not given their full consent and their full consent should only be given after there is full understanding. Genetic experiments should never be conducted on those who are not aware that genetic experiments are being done. It should only be done on those who have full understanding and give their full consent. And if someone is going to do that, well, then I suppose that's their decision. But even still, if there are those who have given, who have full understanding and have given full consent, there still seems, there's still something within me, and I'm not entirely sure why, but there's something that hesitates at the idea of accepting genetic manipulation or engineering of people or even animals. There's something within me that hesitates to say that that would be okay. Now, I don't know if it's just my mistrust of people and organizations and government who would have such information and what they would do with it. Or if the idea of manipulating or engineering human genes is just, just those phrases gives me hesitation. I mean, this is a podcast that focuses on science fiction, right? How many stories could we mention in sci-fi where it has taught us about the dangers of manipulating genes? How could this go wrong? Could anything bad possibly happen with gene manipulation or engineering? I don't know how it could, right? I would want people to be incredibly cautious in what they do with genetic manipulation and only use that for good, but I doubt whether that would always be the case or not. So I hesitate to give genetic engineering or manipulation a green light because I, I'm not sure what it would be used for. And could it be used for something like it's been used for in the left hand of darkness or something even more dangerous, something even more evil? There's just something that gives me pause and hesitancy about that. We also learned that chemering happens between people who have not vowed chemering. So you don't have to be in a monogamous relationship with somebody, which would be what vow chemering is. 
But kemmering can also happen between people who are not in a relationship, and sometimes kemmering even happens in groups. So vowed kemmering, uh, understanding it that way, would be what we are told God's way is for kemmering or, or sex. That's what God's way is, a vowed kemmering. To be in a monogamous marriage, that sex is supposed to take place in a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman, that is God's plan. That is what is best. Chapter 8 goes back to I's point of view, and he has spent some time just gathering information and attempting to learn as much about the Gethians as he can. One of the things he learns is about the family structure of the Gethians, and we read this. A quarter to a third of the adult urban population is engaged engaged full-time in the nurture and education of the children. Here, the clan looked after its own. Nobody and everybody was responsible for them. So the parental instinct um, varies widely uh, on Gethin as anywhere. One can't generalize. I never saw a car hider hit a child. This is what I is writing. I have never seen one speak very angrily to a child. Their tenderness towards their children struck me as being profound, effective, and almost wholly unpossessive. Only in that unpossessiveness does it perhaps differ from what we call the maternal instinct. I suspect that the distinction between maternal and a paternal instinct is scarcely worth making. The paternal instinct, the wish to protect, to further, is not a sex-linked characteristic. Again, we have a world here that is imagined where there is no difference between male and female. But men and women are different, as we've already discussed, and mothers and fathers are different. Later in the book, we read something else that is interesting about the family unit. It's later in chapter 8. The system of extended family clans, of hearths and domains, though still vaguely discernible in the uh, communal structure, was nationalized several years ago in Oregonian. No child over a year old lives with its parent or parents. All are brought up in the commensal hearths. There is no rank by descent. Private wills are not legal. A man dying leaves his fortune to the state. All start equal. So the family unit here is significantly different than the family unit on earth, or at least what the family unit on earth is supposed to be. The family unit as God intended is for a married couple to have children to raise their children in their household. And why is this? First, God desires for people to have families because God is part of a family. We call this the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God has always been a part of a family. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is uh, integral to, to who God is and to God's character. God is in a family before God becomes other things. So, so God, even before God is a creator, he's a part of a family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before God was a redeemer or savior, there was a family. God has always been a part of a family and he knows the goodness that it is and desires to share that goodness with others for people to have a family of their own and also to join his family. And to have a family like he is, to, and, and to have a family like he is to be a part of, to have a, a healthy and a good family with good and healthy relationships between family members. That's what God wants and desires. God saw how good a family was being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he wants his creation to share with that. 
A family should also be the place where you can learn who God is and how to love God, but also how to love others. The family is the primary way where we learn about faith and who God is and how to live out this life. Families are good, and I really like and enjoy my family, so it would be very difficult for me to live on Gethed in this type of society where I would just forfeit my children to be real to be raised by others in a different household, even though they're a part of my extended family unit and to not spend as much time with them and to not be in the same house, that would be very difficult for me to do that because I really enjoy and like my family. We also see here briefly in this chapter that while Gethin is a technological society, they move slowly and we read that in 300 years they have done less technological-wise than Earth has done in 30. But they've also not had the environmental impact on Gethin as humans have had on earth and we've talked about this before we should be good stewards of earth and there's some uh, environmental issues coming up here about how the earth is not taking great care of its environment because we're all about progress but how the gethans have taken better care of their planet and they are more concerned about presence well in this chapter uh is also where we find out that the king is pregnant and while the king is pregnant his cousin tib has been put in charge and when I returns to Aaron Rang, he no longer feels safe. And Ash comes and finds I and asks I to take money to Estraven. And I agrees. And when he agrees, reread this. He stared at me. His face worked and changed. And he caught his breath in a sob. Most carhiders cry easily, being no more ashamed of tears than of laughter. I seem to be taken aback as... I himself rarely cries. And he links that with his masculinity, but with no sense of masculinity in the Gathenians, they show emotion freely. So so, so there's another difference there in, in how masculinity is perceived by I and masculinity is not really perceived at all by the Gethians. Men, it is okay to show emotion. Maybe not let emotions control you, but to show emotions, whether that's sadness or grief, that's okay. Crying doesn't make you less of a man. I hope, I think most of us understand that, who are men, and I I, I hope you understand that as well. If you are crying, showing emotions does not make you any less of a man. Well, I goes to uh, Orgorian and eventually makes it to Mishnori, the capital of Orgorian, and meets the government official named Shushkis. I goes to dinner where he is the guest of honor and... um, at that dinner, we read uh, that where the dinner is. So they're in dinner. They're at this big hall. And here's what we read. The fiercely lighted high white reception room held 20 or 30 guests. Three of them commensals and all of them evidently notables of one kind or another. This was more than a group of orgata curious to see, quote unquote, the alien. I was not a curiosity as I had been for a whole year in Carhide, not a freak not a puzzle. I was, it seemed, a key. What door was I to unlock? The question here that I think we need to ask is, how do we see others who are different than us? How are we treating the other among us as a curiosity, as a key that can do something for us, or are we going to treat others as a person who is made in God's image and as such should be treated with dignity and respect? How do we see those and how do we treat those who are different than us? At the party, I sees Estraven and the two are cold towards each other. And I believes Estraven is actually behind him coming to Orgorian. 
And uh, chapter nine is an East Cardish tale titled Estraven the Traitor. And we're just going to skip over it because it's of no significance to us. And it's one of those that doesn't advance the main story, but it's just a, a tale uh, that, that we don't need to look at. So chapter 10, the last chapter we'll look at in this episode is back to I's point of view. And in the morning after the dinner party, Estraven comes to visit I. I still doesn't trust Estraven and isn't happy that he will have to work uh, with him and have interactions with him. But I gives Estraven the money. And at one point, Estraven tells I that you can't believe everything you hear on the radio. They're talking about that and something comes over the radio. He says, you can't believe everything you hear on the radio. And apparently there is fake news on Gethin, just like there is on Earth. And at lunch, Opsal tells I there are other men in the uh, about other men in the room. Mershon is a Cardish spy. Guam is an agent of the Sarf, although I doesn't know what that means or what the Sarf Sarf is, and neither do we for now. Uh, and then I hears on the radio that King uh, Argaven has given birth to his child, but the child has not lived long, and he has died. After lunch, I asks uh, Shushkis what the Sarf is, and he is told that they are one of the permanent bureaus of the internal administration. They look out for false registries, unauthorized travel, job substitutions, forgeries, that sort of thing. Trash. That is what Sarf means in gutter or toga. Trash. It is a nickname. And I wonders about the Sarf and what their end goal is. But it appears as though the government officials are interested in joining the ecumen, but I feels as though he can't trust anyone. And that's the end of chapter 10. And that does it for part one on the left hand of darkness with topics discussed including truth, subjective, relative, and objective truth, patriotism and fear of the other, the theology of the body, sexual ethics, bringing glory to God, the ethics of human genetic manipulation, and much, much more. And we've been at it for over two hours now or just around two hours. So thank you for listening and thank you for being here. And I look forward to taking a dive into the second half of this book and looking and seeing what it means. But it's such a, a difficult book to look at and to look at it because it brings up the top, the topics that it brings up are difficult. It's a good, great book to read. I actually really enjoy this book and the perspective that it brings. I like reading things from people who have a different perspective than I do just because I want to understand where they're coming from. Even if I don't agree with people, I like reading things that I don't agree with people on because I want to understand their position more. And I think understanding more can lead to better communication and can lead to, to more opportunities to be able to share with other people once I understand their position more. But anyway, I, so, so I enjoy this book and reading it, but it just brings up a lot of difficult discussions, a lot of difficult topics that are not always easy to discuss. So thank you for listening and making it through, making it through this episode with me. If you would like to, you can follow uh, Theology and Sci-Fi either on Instagram or Twitter at Theology and Sci-Fi. And we spell Sci-Fi the right way around here, S-C-I-F-I. So you can either follow on Twitter or Instagram, or you can follow Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast on Facebook, or you can email me at theologyandsci-fi.com at gmail.com. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, whatever it may be, it would be great to hear from you. I would love to do that. And thank you for listening to this episode. We're halfway through this book and have covered such an interesting amount of topics and we'll cover even more when we meet again in two weeks. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. I truly enjoy going through this and having this opportunity to be here with you. So thank you for listening. 
And what you could do to really help out is to tell other people about this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, if you like it, if it has been of some benefit to you in any way, I just encourage you and would ask you that you would tell others about it and maybe we can grow a little bit more. So thank you so much for being with me during this time and holding on to make it to the end through some difficult topics. If there's a topic that we discuss that you disagree with me on and would like to have a further conversation, you know how to reach out to me. I would love to have a conversation with you about it, even if we do disagree on something. I hope we can still sit down in a civil way and still have a discussion. So if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, you can email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com or contact me through other social media sites that I've already mentioned. So thank you so much for being here with me today. I truly appreciate it and truly look forward to the next time where we will join together to discuss the second half of The Left Hand of Darkness. So that'll be the next episode. And then the episode after that, again, I'm going to remind you just where we're going. We'll be looking at the movie Dune that came out in 2001. So Dune Part 1, I believe, is what they kind of called it, that came out in 2001. So next episode, the second half of Left Hand of Darkness. The episode after that, we'll be back up to the silver screen looking at the movie Dune. So thank you so much for joining me. I truly, truly appreciate it. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. I was alone with a stranger inside the walls of a dark palace in a strange snow-changed city in the heart of the ice age of an alien world.